Hello, I'm Tim Lucas, the editor of Video Watchdog magazine and the author of a big book about the life and films of Mario Bava that I'm hoping to finish and publish next year. We're going to watch The Mask of Satan, the director's cut of a movie that is better known under its original release title of Black Sunday. This version contains scenes, dialogue, some gory highlights, and a music score that were not included in the version distributed here by American International Pictures. This is the version that Mario Bava made, and it was his first official assignment as a director. It is the 17th century, and Princess Asa of Vida, played by Barbara Steele, is being condemned by her brother Griabi, the Grand Inquisitor. She's being put to death for either being a vampire or a witch. The movie confuses the two. But if you read between the lines, she's actually being branded for consorting with Prince Igor Javutich, the man who's been put to death with her, who is described as a serf of the devil. In fact, the Italian credits for this film identify Javutich as Fratello della Strega, brother of the witch, which explains why he wears on his chest the griffin that is emblazoned on the Vida family hearth. So there are hints that these evil siblings are being put to death for acts of incest, and also because Griavi doubtless covets the throne that they would share if left alive. By the way, Javutich was renamed Javuto in the AIP version. This opening scene is one of the most influential in the horror genre. You'll find scenes very much like this in such films as Roger Corman's The Haunted Palace, Horror Hotel from Britain, Italy's Terror in the Crypt and the She-Beast, and the German film The Torture Chamber of Dr. Sadism, not to mention recent movies like The Haunting of Morella, proving that The Mask of Satan had an immediate and lasting global impact. I don't know anyone who saw this film during its 1961 theatrical run who doesn't claim to have been traumatized by it. This Mask of Satan was sculpted in bronze by Mario Bava's father, Eugenio, who was not only a sculptor, but also a cinematographer and director, and the father of special effects photography in Italy. The subjective shots of its spiked lining and the clever cut as the camera passes through the eye hole introduces an eye motif and an injury to the eye motif that carries throughout the picture. As Princess Asa condemns her persecutors and their progeny, we can tell that the lead actors spoke their lines in English, though the dubbing, credited to George Higgins III, takes some poetic license with the dialogue. The AIP version is actually a bit closer to matching the lip movements of the actors and replicating what they actually said. The stars of this film, Barbara Steele and John Richardson, were both under contract to J. Arthur Rank, and I like to think that Baba conceived this unique means of torture as a tongue-in-cheek reference to Rank's famous hammer and gong trademark. That shot is actually a bit more graphic than in the AIP version, which faded to black rather quickly. The music you're hearing was written by Roberto Nicolosi. It was replaced on the AIP version with music by Les Baxter, which actually recycled some of Nicolosi's themes without credit. Indeed, Nicolosi's romantic Katia's theme later appeared on one of Baxter's Exotica albums under the title The Jewel of the Sea. Barbara Steele's name may be misspelled in them, but overall, these main titles are a great improvement on the AIP titles, which were superimposed over a simple shot of a flaming brazier.
The Mask of Satan was produced over a six-week period, beginning on March 28, 1960, at Titanus Studios, formerly Scalera Film, the birthplace of the Italian horror film, where Baba had photographed and co-directed Yves Ampiri in 1956. The studio was later renamed Titanus Appia Studios, as it was known when Baba shot Kill Baby Kill Bear in late 1965. While Baba was shooting The Mask of Satan, Antonio Margheriti was filming Assignment Outer Space, the first significant Italian science fiction film, on the soundstage next door. Here the narrator tells us that the body of Javudic is being buried in a special area of the cemetery reserved for murderers. The AIP version extends this exclusivity to include suicides as well. This cemetery set can be seen, somewhat redressed in Kill Baby Kill, and so can the ruined chapel where Princess Asa is laid to rest. Parts of this crypt set were later used as the torture chamber of Mickey Hargitay's Crimson Executioner in Bloody Pit of Horror, another Italian horror movie I heartily recommend. Two centuries later, which would place this around 1830, enter Dr. Andreas Gorobek, played by John Richardson, and his mentor, Dr. Komas Kruvayan, played by Andrea Chaiky. They're en route to a medical convention in Mirgorod. Mirgorod, incidentally, was the title of an 1835 collection of stories by the Ukrainian author Nikolai Gogol, which included the classic ghost story, The V, on which this film's screenplay was very loosely based. The relationship between the two men is friendly, but marked by Kruvayan's patient attempts to temper Andrea's youthful youth enthusiasm. The young man is so inexperienced that he actually can't wait to reach this dreary convention. Kruvayan has been there. He's content to enjoy the coach ride, the scenery, and read his book. Baba himself was 46 years old at the time this film was made, rather a late start for a director, and Kruvayan should be regarded as his representative in the narrative. Kruvayan has an ironical nature, but he loves the good things in life, like a good book or Mirgorod's smoked salmon and excellent vodka. He's also inquisitive, attracted to elements of the dark side, which is his downfall. Most of the film's exteriors were shot indoors so that Baba could exert complete control over the look of supposedly natural environments. This coach ride, for example, provides an excellent look at Baba's ability to conjure entire worlds out of nothing. On the set, the coach had barely enough room for the horses to move eight paces in either direction and barely enough room to turn about. Crew members carried branches around the camera to provide the coach with the illusion of, the illusion of movement through the forest. Baba filmed the coach approaching and leaving through a glass mat with gnarling branches painted on it. The rest, if you look closely, is evoked by nothing more than shadows and sound. The coachman, incidentally, was played by Mario Passante, who had previously worked with Federico Fellini in Il Bidone and the Knights of Cabiria.
The Mask of Satan was Mario Bava's directorial debut, but in the late 1950s, he actually directed the majority of two films credited to Ricardo Freda, Ivan Piri, and Caltigi the Immortal Monster. For bailing out the latter film, Galatea president Leonello Santi rewarded Bava by letting him direct any film of his own choosing. He chose to adapt Gogol's The V, which had terrified his children when he'd read it to them at bedtime. As Bava later noted with typical self-deprecation, thanks to the genius of the screenwriters, myself included, nothing of Gogol's original story remained. It was only the third Italian horror film ever produced in the sound era, and I'm told it was budgeted at the equivalent of $100,000 at a time when most Italian films were being financed for $60,000 to $70,000. It made millions. This gorgeous set of the ruined chapel was designed by Giorgio Giovannini, who was working in the industry as recently as Terry Gilliam's The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Ruins, particularly the ruins of churches, often figure in Baba's films, and it's a distinctly Italian touch considering how much of Rome is ruins and how much more of it was destroyed by bombs during Baba's early adult years in the Second World War. For the last few minutes, we've been hearing a weird sound on the soundtrack that lured our heroes into the crypt, as Kruvayan discovered it was nothing but wind caught in the pipes of an old organ. This was a nice way of introducing a tone of unease into the scene that was previously used by Billy Wilder in Sunset Boulevard. In these scenes, it's easy to appreciate why Black Sunday was so popular at the time of its release. In 1961, thanks to Britain's Hammer films, most horror films were in color and upping the ante in the gore department. And the old guard of horror aficionados didn't always appreciate the trend. Black Sunday pleased everybody with a period atmosphere that richly evoked the golden age of Universal, while remaining perfectly contemporary with its violent shocks. And it also had something new with its stylized Gothic Rococo look that informed nearly every Italian horror film made over the next five years. Being the work of a very inventive cameraman, Black Sunday was a supremely visual experience, in a way that horror films really hadn't been since the 1920s. As our heroes descend into the crypt, Baba allows his audience to soak up the atmosphere with this spectacular 360-degree turn around the set, defying the viewer to regard it as a set at all. The design of Princess Asa's tomb with its window looking out on the stone crucifix, holding the vampire in place throughout the centuries, once again underscores the film's special attention to the eye and the act of seeing. Frankly, I prefer it outside. Not only is there no air in here, but it's also a little gloomy.
This bat attack is one of the most successful such scenes ever filmed because much like the coach ride through the forest, it is achieved almost entirely through suggestions of light, shadow, and sound. The emblem on this icon depicts St. George, the Dragon Slayer, a reference to the fact that Asa was put to death on the day known as the Feast of St. George, the Sunday following Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, hence Black Sunday. As Kruvayan pries the mask loose from Asa's face, we hear a lot of moist and squishy sound effects, which AIP was careful to delete from U.S. prints. The witch's face, still intact, was sculpted in wax by Eugenio Baba. Another eye reference, as Kruvayan remarks on her empty eyes, how they seem to be looking at us. Indeed, it is through those hollow sockets that Kruvayan's blood will initiate the rebirth of the witch. The stormy sky was a glass matte painting that Baba executed himself. As our heroes exit the tomb and encounter Princess Katya, Asa's twin descendant, the audience initially fears that the witch has already returned to entrap them. This stunning composition of Princess Katya flanked by two Neapolitan mastiffs may have been Baba's tongue-in-cheek tribute to his mentor Ricardo Freda a tyrannical director who was known to exact authority on his film sets by arriving accompanied by vicious dogs. Barbara Steele was born in Trenton, Wirral, Cheshire on December 29, 1938. She started out as a model in her late teens and appeared on at least one album cover for Reg Owen's easy listening album, You Don't Know Paris before becoming the last contract player signed by the Rank Organization, for whom she played small roles in five films, including Upstairs and Downstairs and Basil Dearden's remake of The 39 Steps. Rank never quite figured out how to use her and sold her contract to 20th Century Fox in 1959. Relocating to Hollywood, Steele made token appearances in a couple of American TV series, including Alfred Hitchcock Presents before she was dyed blonde, put in blue jeans, and cast opposite Elvis Presley in the western Flaming Star. Two or three days into production, Steele walked off the picture after an argument with director Don Siegel and flew to Europe. She was replaced by Barbara Eden. Sick of the Hollywood system, the polylingual actress demanded that her agents submit her portfolio abroad, and her pictures subsequently crossed the desk of Mario Bava. Bava immediately recognized the equal potential for romance and horror in Steele's dark beauty. And though they never worked together again, he regretted this, stating that she had the perfect face for his films. Throughout this scene, Steele's eyes are subtly highlighted, and as Katya's theme swells on the soundtrack, Andre and Kruvayan depart. 
In the coach, Andre explains his immediate attraction to the princess by mentioning Katya's eyes and the sadness in them. The career of Steele's co-star, John Richardson, had followed an almost identical path. Born January 19, 1938, he was a former male model signed by rank. He actually played opposite Steele in her first screen test, her first film, Bachelor of Hearts, and in Basil Dearden's murder mystery, Sapphire. Rank also sold Richardson's contract to Fox, but unlike Steele, he remained with the studio for several years, starring in such Hammer film productions as She, The Vengeance of She, and One Million Years B.C., during the filming of which he met the actress Martine Beswick, who was his girlfriend for many years. Richardson also spent many years in Italian exploitation, starring in films like Ricardo Freda's Murder Obsession and Frankenstein 80. Now retired from acting, he works today as a photojournalist. As we cut back to the tomb, Oss's body begins to reanimate with a jelly and rice confection rising inside her waxen head. It's evening at Castle Vida, and Princess Katya sits at the piano, playing her own theme. Since it was played during her meeting with Andre, we can presume that she is still thinking of the handsome young man she met that day. Her brother Constantine, played by Enrico Olivieri, is cleaning a gun after an unlucky day on the hunting fields. The camera glides along, revealing a portrait of Javutic on the wall and a magnificent fireplace bearing the family symbol of the griffin, or dragon, the creature slain in legend by St. George. The romantic mood of the music remains dominant but as the camera glides around the chair to introduce their father, Prince Vida, the mood of the music is contradicted by the haunted look on his face. This scene differs somewhat from the AIP version in which Katya is heard playing a dirge, which anticipates the prince's expression and ruins the surprise of this elaborate shot. Prince Vida is played by Ivo Garani, 
Born February 6, 1924, in Entradaqua, Guarani made his first screen appearance in 1952. He first worked with Mario Bava in 1956 on Pietro Francisi's Roland the Mighty, in which he played a compromised king. The role became his stereotype, and he played variations on it in other films photographed by Bava, like Hercules, The Day the Sky Exploded, and The Giant of Marathon, before finally perfecting it in Black Sunday. Incredible as it may seem, the white-haired Guarani played this patriarchal role at the age of only 36. Prince Vida is unnerved by the fact that the portrait of Princess Asa has changed, which reminds him that tonight is the bicentenary of her death. He recalls that Katya's intermediary ancestor, Princess Masha, died 100 years ago this night during an earthquake that also laid waste to the family chapel. Masha was only 21 and, like Katya, Asa's twin. If you still frame the shot of the painting in frame with Guarani, you'll see that it's not quite the same one that's used in the insert shots, which were added the last week of shooting. Before deciding to become a cameraman, Mario Bava studied to become a painter, and paintings, especially family portraits, often play a prominent role in his films. Katya is clearly uneasy about her resemblance to her ancestor, which seems to diminish her free will. And Bava may have used scenes like this to express his own feelings about following in the professional footsteps of his father Eugenio, whose approval he always sought and seldom won. Mario's son, Lamberto Bava, now one of Italy's most popular commercial filmmakers, feels a similar, quote, burden of heredity, end quote, as he calls it. Mario Bava was raised in a very religious household. In addition to his duties for the cinema, his father sculpted likenesses of the saints for churches, and his sister grew up to be the mother superior at a Roman church. Bava once described himself as being more Greek than Italian, more heretic than Catholic, and his own surplus of imagination made him a naturally fearful person. Lamberto Bava has said that his father could never go to bed at night without looking under his bed first. In this scene, the prince's major domo, Ivan, played by Tino Bianchi, tries to assuage the prince's fears by reminding him of the power of the sacred symbol of Christ. But as we see, the decisive factor is not the strength of Christian symbols, but the weakness of the prince, whose fears ultimately spell his doom. An earthquake destroyed only the ancient chapel. In the witch's tomb was found split open, as if Az had tried to break out to accomplish her revenge. In fact, that same night, Princess Masha died mysteriously. Masha was beautiful. The very image of Asa. She was just 21 that night. Like Katya. And Katya's her living image. As if the witch tormented her victims with her own beauty before killing them. And it's this resemblance, this repeating of Oz's vengeance that terrorizes me. I'm afraid. You mustn't be afraid, my lord. The cross will protect you. Even if what you said is true, these monsters are terrified by the sacred symbol of Christ. Always have it near you and you'll be safe. Yes, you're right, your highness. The atmosphere surrounding this church is scary. Drink your toddy, sir, before it gets cold.
As the prince seeks fortification in his hot toddy, he finds the mask of Satan reflected there, a shock effect borrowed from Victor Halperin's 1932 film, White Zombie. Back in the family crypt, the symbol of Christ has been smashed and devils are arising. These are two poached eggs being raised into place below the wax mask, accented with soft pulsing lights, and followed by a playful cutaway to the bell of a horn. This is a good time to talk about Andrea Chaiky, who plays the pivotal role of Dr. Kruvayan. Born October 21, 1916, Chaiky made his first screen appearance at the age of 10 in Alessandro Blasetti's 1860. A graduate of Rome's Accademia di Belle Arti, he had a successful career as a painter as well as an actor, and had many exhibitions of his work. In the same year that he starred in this film, Chaiky also appeared in Vittorio De Sica's Two Women, and Fritz Lang's The Thousand Eyes of Dr. Mabuza. Baba's family members recall that Chaiky was one of Mario's closest personal friends and that the two men shared a similar love of the arts and a disdain for most cinema. His portrayal of Kruvayan, warm, ironic, cynical, and avuncular, was actually modeled on Mario Baba. The two friends worked together twice more on the Viking adventures Last of the Vikings and Eric the Conqueror, Andrea Chaiky died in 1974 at the age of 57, the victim of a rare viral infection. The innkeeper is played by Clara Bindi. Her daughter is played by Germana Domenici, the second born of actor Arturo Domenici's three daughters. She was 13 years old at the time. If Germana's walk through the woods reminds you of a similar scene in Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, there's a good reason for that. Horror films were banned in Italy until the mid-1950s, and they were never popular until Hammer's Horror of Dracula was released there in 1959. Consequently, for the generation of Italians born in the 1930s and 40s, Snow White was their first taste of cinematic terror until other horror films began to turn up on Italian screens in the mid-1950s. It's impossible to overestimate the importance of Snow White to Italian horror, as it was a major stylistic influence on many major titles, including Ivan Piri, Dario Argento's Suspiria, and certainly this film.
In this shot, Baba's experience as a painter is wonderfully apparent. As Kruvayan pauses by this little pond to enjoy his pipe, the screen becomes a veritable monochromatic painting. And as he casts a pebble into the pond, the pebble becomes a metaphor for the drops of his blood, and the pond becomes a metaphor for the empty sockets of Princess Asa, as the image of the reconstituted witch emerges from the ripples. To make Steele's eyes look white and blind, Bobby used pin spots and directed Steele to keep her eyes trained outside the field of illumination so that only the whites of her eyes would be visible. As Asa invokes Javutic to rise from his grave, we return to this fantastic cemetery set by Giorgio Giovannini. Once again, the bizarre sounds on the soundtrack are deliberately unsettling, but they are also easily explained. In this case, as the distressed moans of the cow that the innkeeper's daughter is milking. Note how the window in the wall of the barn not only looks directly out onto the grave of Javudich, making it somewhat inevitable, but it is also in a shape approximate to that of a motion picture screen. Its placement allows Baba to execute this graceful return to the window until its shape virtually fills the screen and then obliterate the protective barrier of the barn by cutting outside it on a thunderclap. The sudden jump to a tilted or Dutch angle shot emphasizes that we are in the presence of something off-kilter, unnatural, supernatural. The resurrection of Javutic is a classic scene any way you look at it. The way Baba handles the choreography of camera placement, lighting, atmosphere, and sound is wonderfully dynamic. His first picture, but we are clearly in the hands of a master. This shot of Javudic rising from his grave was originally supposed to be accomplished in a single take, with actor Arturo Domenici scrambling out from under this mound of earth. Unfortunately, in his heavy cloak and costume, under his mask and under very hot studio lights, Domenici kept passing out and nearly suffocated. Thus, Baba had to cut away to this new shot with Domenici already unearthed behind a mound of earth, with his clawed hands gleaming with the clay of the tomb. An interesting thing about this shot is that it actually quotes Domenici's first appearance in Kaltiki the Immortal Monster as a pair of menacing hands creep up over a hillside, only to be revealed as the hands of an archaeologist returning to his encampment. The definitive Bava villain, Arturo Domenici, was born January 2nd, 1918, in Palermo. He gave memorable performances as Eurystheus in, in Hercules and as Nieto in Caltiki, as well as in scenes Bava directed for Sign of the Gladiator and the Giant of Marathon. By his family's count, Domenici made approximately 160 Italian films, but concentrated primarily on television and dubbing assignments after 1973. He died of throat cancer on September 7, 1992, after spending most of his autumnal years dubbing the lead role of Taggart, a popular German TV import. Morbid, aquiline, and regally draconian, Javudic was the zenith of Domenici's distinguished career of screen villainy.
Mario Bava once said that the thing that interested him most as a director was depicting the fear of a single person alone in a room. This is a fine example as Bava's camera tracks out from the fireplace in Prince Vida's room and prowls around until it finds him awake in his bed, beset by fears and the sounds of howling dogs. Here, the movements of the camera appear to be pantomiming the prince's fears, fretfully searching out every nook and cranny of his room. Outside his bedchamber, we see the ornamental backdrop of the Vita fireplace opening to reveal a secret passage, and the camera dollies along, now embodying an evil, invisible energy that has invaded the castle. The camera movement itself becomes evil, scattering Koch's music, knocking things over, as it seeks out the prince's room, as if gravitating to the strongest source of fear in the palace. By using lights on a dimmer, Bava is able to make Javudic materialize from the darkness as if out of thin air. The camera cuts back and forth from perspectives, alternating becoming the source of fear and the object of fear. The climax of this sequence finds Bava making use of the zoom lens, for which he was often criticized by contemporary critics. But Bava was actually one of the few inspired practitioners of the device. It makes the viewer feel the dichotomy of recoiling from a horrifying image at the same moment the eye seizes forward. As the Vita servants go for help, we return to Germana Domenici in the forest, where she is witness to a most amazing sight, the ghostly coach driven by Javudic. This is one of the film's most legendary sequences, beautifully photographed and worthy of being signed by Jean Cocteau. Perhaps what is so remarkable about this sequence is its unexpected lightness of touch after the more graphic horrors of the resurrection. As we return to Kruvayan, deep in reverie, he is not attacked from behind as we might expect, but gently touched by an outwardly spilling carpet of fog. Dr. Kruvayan. Yes? Princess Vida is sent for. Her father is very ill. He begs you to come to the castle. I've come to search for him. I'll tell him at the inn. You won't need to. I've already done so. They told me there where I could find him.
For this shot of Javudic helling along on his coach driver's seat, the passing branches were actually assembled in a kind of propeller arrangement and spun in front of the camera. Seen by the innkeeper's daughter, the coach seems to move in slow motion, but from the vantage of the driver's seat, Javudic seems to be flogging a team of furies. The castello used for these exterior location shots is located on the outskirts of Rome. At the time, it was owned by Prince Vittorio Massimo, the ex-husband of actress Dawn Adams, who had starred with Andrea Cecchi in The Thousand Eyes of Dr. Mabuza. As a subgenre, the Italian horror film, at least those made in the Golden Age between 1956 and 1966, is almost always centered around an imposing castello or villa because the impoverished princes and counts of the area were always willing to rent them out to Roman film productions. This sequence of Javutic leading Kruvion through the castle with the lantern, supposedly to the bedside of the ailing Prince Vida, is expertly handled and plays especially well in a darkened theater. And here we see that what appears to be a door is actually the ornamental fireplace of the Vida Castle, a secret compartment. This bit of ironwork in the foreground sort of reminds you of the shape of the griffin on the fireplace. Very clever use of darkness to conceal the wire. Kruvayan is about to re-encounter the undead Princess Asa, in his own way completing a complimentary circle to the one executed by Baba's camera when he first stumbled upon the Vida family crypt. Before this scene unfolds, the contemporary viewer should be reminded that at the time this film was made, there had been very few female monsters in horror films, and they were all rather passive in presentation, if not in design. The Bride of Frankenstein, for example, didn't live long enough to do anything monstrous, and the lesbian predation of Dracula's daughter was strictly implied what was so astonishing about this movie when it was first shown and what catapulted Barbara Steele overnight to her throne as the queen of horror was how her performance as Princess Asa was able to so potently combine the attributes of horror and sex appeal, which had never been so disturbingly entwined. If I had to pick one favorite moment in the picture, it's this one, Kruvayan seeing Asa's rematerialized body in the tomb, being temporarily distracted by a noise, another bat perhaps, and then looking back to find her eyes wide open 
taunting him as a cat taunts a mouse before the kill. It's in these moments of a dark, impish quality that the film best captures the spirit of Nikolai Gogol's original story. Asa knows that a blood-fattened fly has been lured into her web, and as if unable to contain her appetite, the stone walls encasing her are about to be obliterated as though by a powerful expulsion of psychic energy. And here we see something that the movies had never shown us before, an image of woman that simultaneously attracts and repels. Asa is undoubtedly a monster, a corpse, a repugnant thing, yet we can understand why Kruvayan finds her irresistible as she lies there panting with expectation. Look into my eyes, she commands us, and we do. With her punctured face, voluptuous figure, and those Lee nails clawing away at the catafalque, Barbara Steele is the most formidably scary yet erotic presence the movies had ever seen. Her skin was painted light blue for this sequence, allowing it to photograph more palely than a natural skin tone. Note that Asa doesn't feed on Kruvayan's blood as a vampire should. Instead, she drains the life from him with a kiss. In some versions of this film, including the AIP version, this shot of Asa's mouth coming up faded to black so that she almost seemed to swallow the camera lens. Sam Arkoff of AIP told me that they trimmed this shot of the kiss, which has never been seen in America before because it was simply too necrophilic for his target audience of preteens. As you're watching this DVD, take a moment to freeze on this magnificent glass mat exterior, because it really is ingenious. The left wall of the castle was a forced perspective miniature merging with a black paper cutout. The sky on the second layer of glass was airbrushed to lend perspective, and the moon was a third uh, layer behind. Uh, it was a small light with a diffusion, positioned behind the two layers, with a third layer of airbrushed cloud being pulled over it. As the moon is revealed by the cloud, a small beam behind the little window in the miniature was raised on a dimmer, which created the illusion of moonlight reflecting on the window. It, a shot like that is really the essence of Mario Bava's genius. He did the special effects in all of his films and never took credit for the work. We do not see Kruvayan drained of his life and youth, as we see happen when Asa absorbs Katya's life energies later in the picture. But as he reappears here in the prince's bedchamber, he looks rather like Onslow Stevens in Universal's House of Dracula, made in 1946, another doctor contaminated by a vampire and forced to do their bidding. Whether Baba had seen House of Dracula, I don't know, but it's obvious that he must have seen photographs of the makeup worn by Stevens. The Mask of Satan is widely regarded as one of the best horror films of the 1960s and as one of the best directorial debuts ever, but it also has some unusual birthmarks that I should discuss. Lamberto Bava 
Mario's son and later his assistant director once said, my father was never satisfied by his stories. He continued to revise his scenarios even after shooting had begun, sometimes changing as much as 50 to 60% of the script. This cutaway scene, which takes us back to the crypt, seems to me one of many telltale traces that Baba had second thoughts about the script during production and began reshooting it and rewriting it in the editing room. Why has Asa not been revived, even after draining the life from Kruvion? Why is she still lying here like an invalid in the crypt, and why is Javudic shown visiting the crypt of his beloved only now? I suspect that this scene was filmed with the idea that it would immediately follow the resurrection of Javudic, and that the first order of business would be to abduct Katya, whom he mentions in that scene, though we've not seen him see her, and bring her to the crypt. If the whole subplot of Kruvion's seduction and use as a vampire stooge was conceived and introduced at some point during production, this would also explain why The Mask of Satan had a six-week schedule at a time when most Italian films of this type were being produced in three or four. It would also explain something that Barbara Steele once said in an interview with Christopher Dietrich, which appeared in Video Watchdog Number 7. Quote, I never saw a script for Black Sunday. We were given the pages day to day. We had hardly any idea of what was going down on that film. We had no idea of the end or the beginning either, not at all. I'm sure that Baba knew. Maybe he didn't. Adding further credence to this theory is the list of contributors to the film's screenplay, which differs depending which version you see. The original treatment was written by Marcello Cossia, while the shooting script was supervised by Ennio Di Concini, who scripted all of the Pietro Francisi films photographed by Bava in the 1950s. The screenplay is also credited on some prints to Bava himself and to Mario Serandre, the film's editor. Serandre was widely regarded as the most talented editor in Italy. He edited Visconti's Assessione and The Leopard, as well as all of Bava's early films, but he wasn't a writer. His screenwriting credit implies that he came up with solutions to narrative problems in the editing room to an extent that went beyond the usual cutting together of existing scenes. Serendre's contribution to Bava's film should not be underestimated because they lost a bit of their former magic after his death in 1966. The question often pops up, why did Bava and Barbara Steele never work together again? The interviews I've conducted for my book indicate that Barbara misbehaved on the set and cost the production quite a bit of money in overtime. Germana Dominici remembers a day when Barbara arrived very late and held up the production for hours while her father, Arturo, suffered the Roman spring heat in his makeup and heavy costume. She remembers him yelling at Baba, who does she think she is, Marilyn Monroe? Baba himself once said that Steele was half crazy, afraid of Italians, and recounted how she failed to materialize on the set one day because someone told her that Baba had perfected a special film stock that made fully clothed people appear naked. Baba tracked her down to her suite at the Grand Hotel and explained that if he had invented such a thing, he wouldn't have to be working for a living. In short, Steele was too undisciplined and temperamental an actress to allow Baba to work with his customary efficiency, and this made him hesitant to use her again. This shot coming up of, of Katya stretched out on her bed recalls a similar shot in The Whip and the Body, a 1963 Bava film starring Dahlia Lavi. Evidently, Bava tried to cast Steele in this film, but in the wake of Fellini's Eight and a Half, he was told by her agents that she was no longer doing horror pictures. 
Fava never approached her again, especially after he caught her starring in Antonio Margariti's Castle of Blood. Several people have told me that there was bad blood between Bava and Margariti. For this amazing shot coming up, the camera was mounted on a pivot platform inside a rig of two concentric springs separated by a system of wheels. This allowed the camera to drop forward and be hand-cranked 180 degrees. Eugenio Bava designed all of Mario's camera attachments, and I'm told that this is very much the prototype of a rig known today as a Carlo, named after the late son of Dino De Laurentiis, whose production of Doom marked its first popular use. And now, after emphasizing horror for most of the picture, the film reintroduces its young hero, Andre Gorobek, and with him, its romantic element. This aspect was an essential part of the film's appeal to Italian audiences, but it did not export well. AIP felt that the film was more romantic than American audiences, especially young audiences, would take seriously, and some cuts were made. Andre takes care to fix his tie and collar before riding off to Castle Vida, proving that Katya is still in his thoughts. This scene, where a runaway piece of laundry leads to the discovery of a dead body, is actually a quotation of sorts from the opening scene in Ivan Piri, where a dead body is found in the River Seine. Bava also directed a similar scene for Giacomo Gentilomo's film Last of the Vikings, in which the blood of a speared woman is followed downriver. Mario Bava's films are rightfully acclaimed for their inventive cinematography. But in one of his rare interviews, he confessed that The Mask of Satan was the only one of his films whose budget was healthy enough for him to rent an actual camera dolly and crane. He found that he could always frame a shot effortlessly just by raising or lowering the camera, and estimated that it took him an average of seven minutes to light each setup. On Bava's later films, he was known to use a child's red wagon as a camera dolly and a homemade seesaw device as a makeshift crane. The world never knew the difference. Andre introduces himself as Dr. Gorobek, a name derived from Gogol's story, The V. Up to now, I've mentioned the story, but haven't given any indication of what it's about. The V is the story of three monastery students on holiday who take to the open road in search of adventure. Two of them are named Coma Brut, the source of Dr. Kruvayan's Christian name, Comas, and Tiberi Gorobets, similar to Andre's surname of Gorobek. The three students walk long into the night, finally discovering a cottage owned by an old woman who refuses them hospitality until they assure her that there will be no mischief. As his friends sleep, Coma Brute is stalked by the old woman who climbs onto his back and rides him like a horse to the end of her property, where she falls off his shoulders in a fit of exhaustion. To Coma's amazement, the withered crone becomes a beautiful young woman in her sleep, and he wastes no time in making his escape. Continuing on his way alone, Coma is approached by the coachman of a wealthy Cossack captain who is looking for him. The coachman, whose name is Yavtuk, hence Javutich, tells him that the captain's dying daughter has requested him by name to read the prayer of the dying over her and the Psalms three days after her death, and for that he will be assured a great reward. When he arrives, the daughter is already dead, and he must spend three nights with her corpse in the family chapel re reading psalms over her. When Coma sets eyes on the dead girl, he sees the young woman that the old crone became before his very eyes. And each night, for three nights, as he reads psalms over the dead, the witch arises and assails the young monk with assorted demons and visions from hell. 
but he remains impervious by drawing a chalk circle around himself that renders him invisible to them. Finally, the young witch summons the V, a demon with iron eyelids that, once raised, allow him to see through any barrier. The iron eyelids of the V suggest the bronze mask nailed to Oz's face in the film's opening sequence, but otherwise the story and the film have almost nothing in common. The story was first filmed in 1918 by the great Russian animator Ladislav Staryevich as a short combining live action and animation. The story was also faithfully filmed in Russia in 1967 in a version with special effects sequences supervised by the great Alexander Petushko, the Russian Mario Bava, if you will. I strongly recommend this version, called V, which has been released on Japanese Laserdisc in Russian and which circulates on the gray market as a VHS tape in English. Boris's body, Mr. Boris, down by the stream. Boris, fine. Yes, Your Excellency. You should see how he looks. His eyes are popping out of their sockets. His teeth are bare. His hands are clenched. Where is he now? We carried him into the sacristy. The parish priest is there. You there? Me? Yes, come in. Your mother says you saw the carriage that came to fetch Dr. Suve up. That's easy. I'm sorry, Aunt. I heard when I was coming back home from the barns, Ted and Mary Kay went to hide in the ditches. But it wasn't Boris who was driving the coach. I know Boris's face very well. It was a stranger, at least I've never seen him before. Are you sure? I'm sure. I'm going to the village to see Boris's body. And you come with me. But remember, you must tell me everything. Everything you know. Do you understand that? I'm sorry, Aunt. Certainly, Ted. I'll tell you everything. Here the innkeeper's daughter identifies Javutich from the family portrait. As often happens in Baba's films, it is through the intervention of a work of art that the truth about something is revealed. As an aside, I want to point out Barbara Steele's performance in this scene, in which she makes rather a show of contesting what the girl has said. Why? Could this scene have been filmed with the idea that this was actually Asa masquerading as Katya? Would Katya be behaving this way, so coquettish and manipulative in the wake of her father's death? Now we go to the sacristy, where we are introduced to the character of the priest, played by Antonio Pierfederici. Pierfederici was born in Sardinia in 1924 and had been acting in films since 1946. In 1974, he appeared in the Italian film Il Baccio, The Kiss, an erotic film starring Martine Beswick, which had the added distinction of being the first movie on which Lamberto Bava served as assistant director to someone other than his father. It's interesting to note how the character of the priest in this film is underplayed. He's never even given a name. The authority of the church never does any grandstanding in this picture, never eclipses Andre's role as the film's hero, even though Andre is actually given very few opportunities to do anything heroic.
father. Miss Constantine would like you to prepare the funeral for her. Yes, I I think we will do that. This shot of the fireplace is another favorite of mine due to the way the lighting has been layered to reveal one detail at a time. Note how a very thin sliver of light lends definition to the smoke in the middle ground, yet the light doesn't reach far enough into the background to reveal what is about to be revealed as Javutich and then Kruvayan emerge from the darkness. Then, to make the shot even more interesting, Kruvayan advances, appearing to walk right through the flames. But this is an illusion created by the interaction of the actor and the camera. If you keep your eye on the smoke, you'll see that he's actually stepping around it. This is another scene in which some editorial revision can be detected as Katya returns to her room and readies herself for bed. Here we see Javutich lying in wait behind the curtain of Katya's bedroom and we see her pausing well within his reach when suddenly we cut away for no particularly valid reason to Andre's room. When we cut back to Katya, she is now seated at her vanity table in a white lacy nightgown. In her vanity mirror, she sees Javutich reaching through the curtain and screams. A few things. First of all, there would be no reason to cut away from the shot of Katya hesitating by the curtain unless Javutich really did grab her. If he failed to reach her, the shot would be more suspenseful if left intact. Secondly, as for the reflection of his hand, what could Javudic possibly hope to reach for from such a distance? Also, if you look back, you'll note that we never see a mirror. In another master stroke of illusion, Bava implies the mirror by reverse printing the clutching hand to give it the appearance of a reflection. From the available puzzle pieces, it would appear that the scene was originally shot so that Katya was successfully abducted by Javudic and taken to the crypt to be exchanged with Princess Asa. Whether this means that some of the scenes were shot with steel portraying Katya as though she were Asa impersonating Katya is an interesting question to ponder. Certain scenes don't make sense this way, such as the one that shows a crucifix nestled comfortably in her cleavage, but does it make any more sense that vampires cast a reflection? Other scenes do make more sense if viewed from this perspective, particularly the aforementioned scene where Katya goes out of her way to reject the suggestion that Javutich is alive minutes after discovering her father ravaged to death by a vampire. Bava liked the idea of someone being attacked from behind a curtain well enough to restage it as Christopher Lee's death scene in 1963's The Whip and the Body. Also tied to these mainstream revisions is the film's apparent confusion of the words vampire and witch. The film was scripted to be about vampires and it was made commercially feasible by the recent commercial success in Italy of Hammer's Horror of Dracula. Indeed, the film's Italian title, La Mascara del Demonio, was an ironic nod to another big hammer hit, The Curse of Frankenstein, 
which had been released in Italy in 1960 as La Mascara di Frankenstein. When the filming began, Barbara Steele and Arturo Domenici were both fitted with vampire fangs, but Baba felt that they looked ridiculous and abandoned them. You'll find a rare photograph of Arturo Domenici modeling his fangs in the photo gallery on this disc. I showed him the eyes. He disappeared without any explanation. Very difficult. Any rational person would know that the first police were coming. The important thing is to get the film ready. If I don't make it ready now, before it can come, I'll be lost. I'd be so grateful to you. Father, don't you know my sister's been suffering terribly from that Russian attack? I would greatly appreciate it if you could urge her to leave the castle. I tried to convince her, but it was useless. She said it would be just like going to the This scene of Andre stealing a moment away to talk with Princess Katya at the fountain was cut from the AIP version because it was considered too romantic. Sam Arkoff knew his audience and knew that a scene like this would have kids hooting and throwing popcorn at the screen. It's an interesting scene nevertheless, and the things that Katya says about herself, about her dark moods and the inescapability of her life in the castle, are enough to make me believe that this dialogue was scripted by Baba himself. Baba was very much a homebody, and he almost never set foot outside of Italy. While he unquestionably felt limited by the way he was, he preferred his own sense of security over whatever he might have gained professionally by being more adventurous. And he might have gained quite a bit. He rejected an invitation from Dino De Laurentiis to supervise the special effects of King Kong in 1976, and recommended Carlo Rambaldi instead. Even though Rambaldi's giant Kong robot backfired badly, the assignment led to much more rewarding assignments on Close Encounters of the Third Kind and E.T. the Extraterrestrial. One of Katya's lines in particular, here is the very image of my life, which she says as she regards the mossy ruins of the shattered fountain, recalls a line spoken by Maximilian, the necrophilic villain of Baba's later masterpiece, Lisa and the Devil, when he says, my life is the very configuration of this villa. The original Italian version of this picture featured a complimentary scene of Prince Vida urging Katya to leave the castle to escape its demons, but this scene was never included in any of the English versions of the film. Just as Andre promises Katya that the sunlight will come to chase all of her darkness away, they embrace and we cut inside to the fireplace, but this time something wonderful is happening. As before, there seems to be an invisible energy prowling about, sparking the fire, but this time the camera is tracking a positive energy, 
perhaps the product of new love. This mysterious zephyr causes a fire which is quickly put under control, but which causes enough damage to point the way to the castle's nest of evil, a secret passage behind the portrait of Javutich. words were the silver griffin and the man in the portrait. This is where I found the dog bleeding to death at their throats after Kubayan disappeared. Let's go in. You stay here, Rick. Make sure the door doesn't open. Don't move from here. If you look closely at this portrait of Princess Asa, you'll see that it's a nude. This is another means of indicating that she may have been put to death by her conservative brother because she was too sexually liberated for the 17th century. It's also said that the Puritans of Salem, for example, burned their witches less out of a fear of black magic than because of their dislike for pagan rituals that included nude dancing. Now at last, Constantine and Andre discover the reposing body of Princess Asa. Hearing John Richardson talk in this scene, I'm realizing that he's dubbed by the same actor who dubbed Reg Park in Baba's Hercules in the Haunted World. How's that for trivia? Faced by the unleashed powers of this evil. Wait until the light on his shoulder starts to fucking kick in. 
A very nice in-camera effect here as Javutic materializes out of thin air. Arturo Domenici was actually standing off-camera positioned to coincide with that black area on the canvas and was reflected on a sheet of glass as the lighting was raised on him by a dimmer. Andre has found the Mask of Satan, discarded by Javudic. No, I don't know where that prop is today. And he and the priest will presently discover Javudic's empty grave. But it is not so empty. Look, a freshly dug grave. Inside the coffin is Dr. Kruvion, or rather a likeness of Kruvion, created by Eugenio Bava. The idea of Kruvion bunking down in another vampire's coffin has a marvelously East European flavor to it. It reminds me of Alfie Bass, the Jewish innkeeper who becomes one of the undead and Roman Polanski's The Fearless Vampire Killers and can't find a box of his own to sleep in. The priest is about to put Dr. Kruvion out of his suffering and out of the picture in a manner much more graphic than AIP was allowed to show audiences in 1961. This is where the injury to the eye motif reaches its grand climax. Now we must find a way to restore Kruvion's reputation. Yes, but how? We must take action, and quickly, for now it is all clear. The witch had transformed Yasmina into the same as the devil. Dead during the day, and alive by night, so you could never doubt her. This is the end. Then the prince, too. Yes, but now we will have to make haste, for the witch has gained her identity. Could we tell her? How could she? As we return to Katya in the castle, watch this clever touch as Baba spooks us with a lunging candlestick, with two candlesticks both very nicely accented by Nicolosi's score. This is the grave of her father, Prince Vida, which we will return to presently. Where is everyone? 
Ivan has been killed and hanged by Javudic. It was another wax head by Eugenio Bava, perhaps the most realistic one created for the picture. Suits of armor falling. If you ever see a suit of armor in a Bava film, it will fall. Katya kneels and appeals to her father for help. This shot of the window as the sun goes down proves to my satisfaction that Baba had seen Terence Fisher's horror of Dracula to prepare for this assignment. There's another clever eye touch here as we see Prince Vida awaken from death through Katya's frightened fingers. Whether we want to or not, Baba has made his children hiding our eyes at the movies. Prince Vita tells his daughter, I am no longer your father. My blood is no longer your blood. He's responding to her prayers for protection, telling her that she can no longer look to him for safety. Javutic intrudes as the prince is about to bite his own daughter. And the ensuing struggle again shows the influence of horror of Dracula, particularly the scene in the library. Once again, Baba goes for the graphic shock as Prince Vida is hurled into the burning fireplace. This first shot is a not terribly neat double exposure with flames printed over a shot of Ivo Garani thrashing about while cloaked in darkness. As his face burns, we cut to yet another wax head by Eugenio Baba, though this one appears to be articulated so that its jaws move as it burns. These close-ups of the prince's burning face were mostly cut from the AIP prints. Mario Bava was approached in the early 1970s by some American producers who wanted him to remake this film in color. He and his son Lamberto reportedly screened the picture and then refused the offer. And this was at a time when Bava frankly could have used the work. The fact is, the executive producer of this film, Leonello Santi of Galatea Films, pleaded with Bava to shoot this film in color the first time around. I have in my possession about a dozen color photographs that were taken on the set, which will be included in my book. They show that Baba was lighting the set as though he were lighting a color picture. Green lighting, purple shadows, splashes of red in the cobwebs, everything you'd expect to see in a color Baba film. But he was using the color to bring out specific values in the black and white photography. In fact, there was a very specific reason why this film couldn't be shot in color, as we're about to see. To achieve this effect of Asa absorbing the youth of her descendant, Baba had old age wrinkles and shadows drawn on Barbara Steele's face in red grease pencil, which were then made invisible by heavy red lighting. Using a dimmer board, Baba simultaneously faded the red lighting and brightened the lights behind a green gel, which made the red makeup photograph black on black and white film stock. As the red lights turned green on Katya, making her appear old, 
the green lights turned red on Asa, restoring her youth. Baba had first used this technique on Gianna Maria Canali and Ivan Piri, and probably felt it was fair game to use again, since no one in Italy had bothered to see Ivan Piri. In 1956, no one wanted to see horror movies, an Italian one least of all. This effect dates back to 1925, when it was used in the silent version of Ben-Hur to depict the curing of the lepers. The effect is credited to the cameraman of that film, Carl Struss, who later reused it to terrific effect in the transformation scenes in Ruben Mamoulian's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in 1932. For these scenes of Asa taunting Katya, Baba did another double exposure using the jagged edges of the broken tomb as a frame splitter. On one of his earlier assignments, Baba divided the frame into as many as a dozen facets, turning 40 extras into hundreds of soldiers on a battlefield. Another shot worth still framing coming up. During this struggle over the pit of spikes, you'll see here a marvelous foregrounded miniature shot from the perspective of the bottom of the pit. This was accomplished by positioning a miniature of the spikes and the stone wall in the foreground of the action, where Richardson, or his stand-in, was resting on his stomach pretending to dangle as Javudich stood outside the cutout. The shot was lit from above and from the right, where the light sources are occluded by a bluntly positioned piece of cardboard. At the top, you see two bare planks nailed together, just enough to suggest the other two walls of the pit. The image is off screen before the viewer has time to deconstruct it, but go back and still frame it for yet another taste of Baba's genius as a special effects artist. Come, come, come. Don't worry about me. They've got you. Don't lose sight. Here are the archetypal universal torch-bearing villagers marching on the castle as we approach the climax. One of the shots is a multiple exposure, increasing their number as described earlier. This close-up brings to mind what one critic once said about Barbara Steele, that she's the only actress whose eyelids can snarl. The impaling of Kruvayan has prepared us now for what Andre must do to Asa, or the woman he presumes to be Asa. But he's stopped from staking her through that big, beautiful Walter Keene eye by the sight of the cross worn around her neck. This is your grave. Katya. How is it possible? I understand. 
when Andre touches the real Asa with the cross. Baba delivers another memorable shock as a rotting torso is revealed under her cloak. Baba liked this effect so much, he reused it in Planet of the Vampires four years later. If you read Barbara's lips in this shot, you'll see that she says, there she lies, damned forever, which was redubbed as dead forever. Similarly, as she invites him to look into her eyes, promising him that he'll experience the joys and beauty of hating, Barbara was actually saying Hades, which makes much more sense. Apparently such language was too strong even for this version. AIP tampered with virtually every Mario Baba film they ever released, but you'll be able to see these movies as Baba intended them to be seen as future releases in Image Entertainment's Mario Baba collection become available. It's interesting to note that Asa never really makes it out of the crypt in the movie, and no one ever pointed this out at the time. Yet when Hammer made a film bringing Count Dracula into modern times in a picture called Dracula AD 1972, a lot of people complained that Dracula never left the crypt and that this was a great weakness in the picture. But this film was hailed as a masterpiece from the very beginning. AIP also cut a lot of Andre's grieving from the domestic prince of Black Sunday. This is one instance where I actually agree with their decision. All of this blubbering seems a bit excessive considering that Andre has only known the princess for one day. as Asa burns the red and green makeup effect is repeated once again, setting us up for a happy ending. Black Sunday had its US premiere at the Allen Theater in Cleveland, Ohio on February 3rd, 1961, and it quickly became AIP's most successful film to date, outgrossing even Roger Corman's initial Poe picture, The House of Usher. AIP promptly cast Barbara Steele in Pit in the Pendulum, and the rest is history. Much to her dismay, Barbara became the queen of horror, appearing in movies for Ricardo Freda, Antonio Margariti, Michael Reeves, Joe Dante, and David Cronenberg, and starring in the 1991 TV revival of Dark Shadows. In 1994, she worked with Video Watchdog to produce a Black Sunday 1995 calendar, a signed limited edition, which is now a collector's item. She once told me that Tim Burton had expressed to her an interest in remaking this movie, which is one of his personal favorites. On the strength of Black Sunday, AIP also invited Mario Bava to relocate to Hollywood and make pictures exclusively for them, but he preferred to stay in Rome, making very personal horror films that have only gained in stature over the years. I'm Tim Lucas, 